Now, there is the new handout today. It's just as before, it's informational as a supplement to the class. We're not going to march through it. It's just something for you to have. If you want to include it in the package, that's fine. That's up to you. Um, if anyone here does not have chart number 12, we seem to have a lot left over. Uh, Renee. Well, see Linda. Uh, she's, she's got them. We gave it out two weeks ago, I believe. It's, it's the breakdown of Trumpet 5, the one that's... Can we have it up, Simeon? I know that's really pretty. Yes, that's the one. That's, that's chart number 12. At the end of our last session, we had a spirited discussion about the literalist interpretation of the tribulation events. Well, actually about the end times altogether. And in particular, the star in Revelation 9.1. Now by the term literalist, my definition of that, I refer to the method of interpretation that considers a literal explanation of an event or actor to be the default. It's where we go first. It's what we start with. And only varying from that, and then only to the extent necessary, as the passage requires. Regarding this, I believe it will be instructive to take just a moment to demonstrate how actually slight, how relatively minor are the disagreements revealed among ourselves in this room when compared to some of the interpretations by respected published scholars of God's Word. So let's take this star in chapter 9, verse 1, as an example. How do other, <clears throat> excuse me, learned commentators of the Bible interpret this fallen star? Here's a quick list. Bengal, Andreas, and DeWitt say it's a good angel. Hengstenberg, and these are all quotations, Hengstenberg says the star here, as throughout the apocalypse, denotes a ruler. The ruler is, is an ideal person who appears in history in a whole series of real individuals. The last great embodiment of this star was Napoleon, but he shall not remain the last. Matthew Poole. John is not here told a story of what was in, what in the beginning of the world, but what should be, and that, 500 years after Christ's coming. And the same reason holds against those who think those seditious persons are meant who did so much mischief in and about Jerusalem during the siege. This had been to have revealed to John those things which he knew were done many years before. 
amongst those who think some particular eminent minister of the church who apostatized is meant, those seem to me to judge better, who think that Boniface III is meant, who in the year 606 obtained the privilege of the Pope's supremacy. Matthew Henry, a standard. Some understand it of Boniface, the third bishop of Rome, who assumed the title of universal bishop by the favor of the emperor Phocas, who, being a usurper and tyrant in the state, allowed Boniface to be so in the church as the reward of his flattery. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> to this fallen star was given the key of the bottomless pit. Having now ceased to be a minister of Christ, he becomes the Antichrist, the minister of the devil, and by the permission of Christ, who had taken from him the keys of the church, he becomes the devil's turnkey to let loose the powers of hell against the churches of Christ. It's Matthew Henry. Two more. Peter Lang. Not an angel, either good or bad, certainly not the devil, we may take the star which has fallen from heaven to be repentance without faith or the sorrow of this world, so-called Cain or Judas repentance, or the remorse and, remorse and penance of religious self-torment, whether clothed in a more ancient and medieval or a more modern form. Finally, John Gill. Wherefore, by this star is meant Antichrist, but whether the Western or Eastern Antichrist, the Pope of Rome, or Mahomet, is a question." End quote. As I've referenced here and there in earlier sessions, these variations between scholars are actually rather tame compared to those expressed regarding other events in the tribulation. But they nonetheless illustrate for us how even more benign are our differences with others here in this room. No matter our individual positions, when considering this event in the first part of chapter 9, I believe that most of us, at least those who have been courageous enough to state their opinion, can agree to the following regarding verses 1 to 5. Of course, from a pre-trib, pre-mill dispensational position, of course. Okay, here's a summary, I would say, of verses 1 to 5 that maybe we all can agree on. Someone who was once in heaven, or the heavens, there are multiples, but now fallen to earth, a being, that is in contrast to an object. Can't really say a person, but a being, B-E-I-N-G, rather than an object, is given a key, that is authority over the gate to the bottomless pit, or abyss, in which demonic beings are imprisoned and about to be released upon the earth. So that's how I would summarize one through five, maybe we can all agree on. 
And if you do not agree with even that generalized interpretation, then no harm. God has given every believer the Holy Spirit, and every believer is free to form his or her own conclusion about this fantastical, apocalyptic text. So long as we treat each brother and sister with respect and courtesy whenever it's discussed. Now, let's get back to our text. Let's read verses 1 to 6 of Revelation 9. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss, and when he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came up down upon the earth and were given power like that of a scorpion of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not given power to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes a man. During those days, men will <coughs> seek death, but will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. Thank you, Renee. Verse 2, which begins, He opened the bottomless pit. Now, as I said, I, I, your handout compares the various words for the underworld. Um, I would say it's not exhaustive, but it's just a good reference to compare the different terms, many of which overlap with each other, mean one thing in the Old Testament, another thing in the New Testament. But it's all there. And this pit or abyss is just one category of those. One of the pleasures of consulting some of the older commentaries commentators is the reading of their English, how our language has degenerated. It breaks the heart, how common and base it's become, how inaccurate and slovenly. Here's how J.A. Seiss described this passage. The doors of separation between the earth and the prison of evil spirits are opened, and mysterious and malignant tenants of the underworld are permitted to overrun the globe and to inflict torture and woe upon its unsanctified inhabitants. Can't improve upon that. It's good stuff. And smoke went up out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. More than once, we've conjectured atmospheric reasons for celestial objects being dimmed or going dark altogether. Here, that's stated explicitly. It is the smoke rising out of the pit that is responsible for darkening the sun and the air. Tells us right off the bat. Verse 3, look at how fast he's moving. 
Then out of the smoke came locusts upon the earth, and, the, and power was given them, as the scorpions of the earth have power. I always think back to the scene that in James Bond, out in the desert, the diamond smugglers, they get this guy, they, they want to kill him, so he does this, and he drops a scorpion down his back, and he goes, boom, and he's dead. Well, it doesn't really work that way. Some of us remember those early James Bond movies too, Greg. We'll soon see in the coming verses that what John labels here, locusts, are not at all the grasshopper-like insects that can become not just a nuisance, but at times a destructive plague upon the earth. Neither are they scorpions but are equipped with a weaponized tail meant to inflict upon humans, quote, torment like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. Verse 5. I take it from the passage as a whole that John chooses to refer to them as locusts because they emerge from the unlocked gates of the pit flying and swarming in a manner visually similar to, similar to a plague of locusts. And locusts are a common means by which God inflicts wrath and judgment upon the earth. That's throughout, throughout the Bible. It's common imagery from Egypt on. Oh, quick sidebar. Just a food for thought. The way the text describes the emergence of these foul beings, quote, then out of the smoke came locusts, end quote. Leaves open the possible interpretation that instead of the locusts emerging from the pit through the smoke, which is probably the most acceptable way to read this, it could be that they materialized from the particles of smoke. The way it reads, out of the smoke came locusts. That'd be neat, wouldn't it? The how, how very sci-fi. The smoke comes out and the particles of smoke become locusts. No extra charge for that. We'll move on. The same frustrating phrase as used in verse 1 is repeated here, was given. In verse 1, the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And in verse 3, power was given them. But as before, there's no mention of who it is doing the giving. We're left to work that out on our own. In verse 1, I concluded that the giver could be Christ, but we can't be sure. Here the question remains, is the power being given from heaven or hell? Considering the explicit restrictions on the use of this power in verses 4 and 5, I incline toward Christ, the probable giver of the key being the one who sets the rules of engagement under the fifth trumpet. God, Christ. As, as I pointed out, in, 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 the, in the apocalypse, it's very often a toss-up as Who's doing? Who gets the glory? Who 
it's very often, it's hard, hard to know whether it's God the Father or Christ. And it, in some, they are explicitly blended together. Both trumpets, five and six, are all about a holy God spending his righteous wrath on an unbelieving and rebellious world. Thus, it's logical to conclude that he is the one calling the shots. He is the one inflicting these demons on human beings. He is the one placing restrictions on who they may torment. Under the sixth trumpet, the numbers those demons may kill. By the end of the sixth trumpet, one half of the population of earth will be killed, will have been killed by the end of what they're doing under the sixth trumpet. And the purpose of the limitations ordered by God are so that men may still repent and turn toward him. The grace of God remains always willing, always eager for souls to be saved right up to the last minute. Yet the prophecy reveals that they will reject this offer. Look at the end of this chapter. Let's read 20 verses 20 to 21. It's Greg. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. And the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their sexual immorality, nor of their thefts. Now, compare that text to what the world tells you today. People are basically good. Up until now, the sixth, the end of the sixth trumpet, we're well into the great tribulation. It is literally hell on earth, and people are still clinging to it. They will not repent, they still hate God. That's a perfect picture of the depravity of God, of depravity of man. Whew, whoa. Whoa, stand back. I'm about to be zapped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Verse 4. They were told not to hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green thing, nor any tree but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. The natural food for locusts is the foliage of the earth. Trust me. The green things, the growing things, the leaves of the trees and bushes. These locusts, however, are instructed to limit their hurt. That's the word adakasasi in the Greek, to do wrong act wickedly, damage, harm, injure, to quote the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And as, very, as is very often the case, men here is anthropos, human being, man or woman, 
It's not just the men being killed. Now let's, let's take a closer look at this portion of the verse. But only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. John, off, John Wolvard offers a pretty good argument from Scripture to support this restriction protecting not just the 144,000, chapter 7, verses 3 to 8, but also anyone sealed in Christ during the tribulation. In other words, anyone who's become a believer during the tribulation would also be hands off. Let's first look at his two references. Turn with me, please, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 2. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. Now the operative word in both of these, as a noun in 2 Timothy and in verb form in Ephesians, is the same as in our Revelation passage. It's sphragis. What a great word. Sphragis. Sounds like something you eat alongside a salad. Uh, sphragis in the, in the Greek, it means seal. Now here's what Walverd writes. Apparently the entire human race is open to the locus activity, except those who are sealed by God in their foreheads. This obviously excludes the 144,000 of Revelation 7. And the protection may extend as far as this plague is concerned to all who know the Lord in that day. According to 2 Timothy 2.19, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. In a similar way, believers in the present age are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, according to Ephesians 1.13-14. It would seem improbable that any true believer in that day would be subject to the torment of the locusts. The torment is rather a judgment upon Christ-rejecting men. It's John Walvoord. Now, for me, that tracks. If God's purpose in these two trumpets is twofold, first to punish evil and second to goad the unregenerate to repentance, 
then why so inflict those already sealed in Christ? Yet, we must admit, we must acknowledge that the text may just be speaking of protecting only those bearing the physical seal of God on their foreheads. Why make such a point of specifically sealing, protecting 144,000 if you intend to protect from torment all believers? And why say in this passage, in this verse, seal of God on their foreheads? Haven't we seen true believers martyred during the tribulation? Indeed, we have. Chapter 6, 9 to 11. Chapter 7, 9 to 17. Flip a coin. No editorial comments, please. Verse 5. And they were not permitted to kill anyone but to torment for five months. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. This verse begins, and they were not permitted to kill anyone. Literally, this is one more given. Edothe is the Greek, was given. It was given to them that they may not kill them. That would be, that's a, a literal translation. It's from the Young's literal translation. And the NIV 84 is very close. It was given to them that they may not kill them. It's a minor point, but a distinction nonetheless. The more common rendering sounds as if these locusts were natural killers but were now being prevented from killing. Which, in a sense, is true. But the text makes it clear that except for the power in their tails, verse 10, all the capabilities and action in this fifth trumpet drama is being not just initiated, but systematically controlled through sovereign grants by Almighty God. Everything that happened happens in this is being given. The permission is given. Power is given. Even those things that are withheld, it's given. First, the key is given to Satan. Second, power is given to the locusts. Third, the locusts are given not to kill, but only torment. And finally, in verse 6, death itself, literally hothanatos, the death, is withheld from those who seek it as relief from the locust torment. Holy God is meticulously giving, granting, bestowing every component of this five-month scene. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings a man. God in His Word likes to use similes, perhaps the most common being pain as a woman in childbirth. 
We read that repeatedly throughout his word. This comparison is made to intense pain with such regularity that the male of the species is forever left in awe of the female for such courageous endurance. Here, however, John employs a different simile for intense pain. Quote, like the torment of a scorpion when it stings. It is said that the sting of a scorpion, while generally not fatal to adults, young children perhaps, but generally not adults, is excruciating and ranks as one of the worst pains humans can endure and experience. How it compares to childbirth, I will leave to others. But it's an intense, anguishing pain. Here it's called torment. This is not a pain to be fooled around with. This is not cutting your finger. This is I want to die pain. The closest I've come to that is on the deck of the ship on our way to Vietnam. My stomach was telling me I want to die. But I'm sure this will be far worse than seasickness. But to torment for five months. The passage is not clear. Does this mean that every individual will be tormented by such intense pain continuously for five months? or inflicted intermittently over a period of five months? All people, or just some, or most? In any case, the monsters will be upon the earth for a duration of five months. Some say the five-month period This, for me, this is an example of how hard it is in this context to stay on point. Because the same people that are, for the most part, literalists, pre-mill, pre-trib, dispensational, etc., and interpret everything literally, some say that the period, the five-month period, comes from that being the typical span of earthly locusts plaguing an area. Well, but these aren't earthly locusts. These are demons from the pit. I'm guessing that, as such, they're not restricted to the time period that earthly locusts go through and denude everything of life. These are horrific, demonic beings that, absent the Lord's, Lord God's restrictions, would surely proceed well beyond that length of time. They are not locusts. They are like locusts. God is orchestrating this. He is limiting this. Why? We don't know. But five months fits into the time frame of the tribulation. Whatever the scope of this torment, 
It will be horrible. Apparently inflicting mankind to the brink of sanity. Verse 6, And in those days men will seek death. This is one of the saddest verses in God's Word. In those days men will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die and death flees from them. Walvard writes, literal death is meant here. This is a horrible picture of domination by demons <clears throat> to such an extent that men lose their ability of free choice and are in agony of body and soul. Even if they want to commit suicide, they're not permitted. Death flees. They cannot die. As I pointed out before, the text here is literally <clears throat> ho thanatos, the death, which adds a certain weight to this verse. Here's Young's literal translation. And in those days, men shall seek the death, and they shall not find it, and they shall desire to die, and the death shall flee from them. But this is a false hope. As it will be for those seeking to be free of the Lord's wrath by letting the mountains collapse upon them in the sixth seal. Yeah. Preparing to raise your hand? Prepare to fire missiles. I'm always prepared to fire missiles. You don't have to tell me that. What? <clears throat> oh, don't do that. Use sign language or something. Pull on a string or something. Would someone please read Revelation 6, <clears throat> verses 15 to 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Stand against God's wrath. But <clears throat> reading that, we can't imagine that those people would think the mountain would fall on them to protect them, to shelter them. I think when a mountain falls on you, it's going to kill you. So they are seeking, as with these in our passage, they're seeking peace from death. <clears throat> And it's a false hope. I liked what David Guzik offered 
He offered some sobering context to this verse. Here's what he writes. The idea of death as an escape is a demonic deception. The infamous murderers of Littleton, Colorado made chilling home movies before their killing spree. Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold left behind a videotape document spelling out their motivation. In the last segment of tape shot the morning of the murders, Harris and Klebold are dressed and say they are ready for, quote, our little judgment day, end quote. Then Klebold, looking tense, says goodbye to his parents. He concludes, quote, I didn't like life too much. Just know I am going to a better place than here, end quote. What an idiot. What tragic deception to think. On the day you will commit terrible murders that you will go to a better place. There was no escape in death for Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Now is the time of repentance to escape from sin and to be restored. Albert Barnes adds this. A large part look forward to death as a, as a release when, if the reality were known, death would furnish no such relief. For there are deeper and longer woes beyond the grave than there are this side of it. How true. And how well said. In conclusion... Let me add this before we in our next session launch into a description of these fantastical demons. Far too many commentators seemingly choose to disregard two important clues that are given in, to this book's interpretation. They're found in its earliest passage. Turn back, back please, to chapter 1, verse 1 how this begins. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant, John. First, this first verse explains that this will be the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the revelation. The word means an uncovering, a revealing. Take the cover off and show what's inside a laying bare, a disclosure of divine truth, a, rev a revealing. That is in, if that is indeed God's purpose in this book, why should we not take him at his word? Yes, there is such a thing as apocryphal language. Yes. Just as there is poetic language found in the Psalms and elsewhere. We don't generally interpret the Psalms Literally. 
in the same way we do, say, Ephesians, 1 Corinthians. This is one reason why the study of this book's events can be so challenging. Walvard writes, The book is a revelation of truth about Christ Himself, a disclosure of future events. That is, His second coming when Christ will be revealed. It is as well a revelation which comes from Christ. Now, that being the case, why should we we approach its content as if it were a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma? Which is how Winston Churchill described Russia in the 20th century. I believe it was after the wars in the 50s. Could be wrong. I contend that the book of the Revelation is not filled with parables, which, like many of the parables of Jesus, require some deeper, even select knowledge with which to ferret out their cryptic meaning. I don't think that's what God is doing here. He's revealing. If that were the case, it would not be called the Revelation, it'd be called the Riddle. Second, it's clear in verse 1 and verse 19 as well in chapter 1 that the events so described in this book are yet future. Now, we have to remind ourselves, yet future for John on the island of Patmos. Fair enough. That's fair enough. The words translated in a short time or must soon. You see that? Things which must soon take place. The Greek is entaki. Do not necessarily mean imminent in a human sense or even from God's perspective in which a yet long delay is implied. Expressions like this must be understood not according to human measurement of time, but rather, as in 2 Peter 3.8, the idea is before long, as time is computed by God. M.R. Vincent. Beyond even that, the word can also mean, as in Young's literal translation, quote, come to pass quickly. In other words, not soon, not very soon, imminent, but when they happen, it's going to happen like that. It's going to boom, 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 boom. Everything's going to fall into place. And you see that, especially in the tribulation. This happens and this happens and this. That is, once it begins, it will unfold speedily, quickly, with dispatch. Thus, the habit of some scholars to conclude that the events detailed in Revelation find their basis in historical events and characters, some even as near to its writing as a few decades or a few centuries, or even as recent to us as the 20th century. 
These result in tortuous interpretations far more fantastical than just taking the text as written. You think that's bizarre. Some of their ideas, some of their interpretations are totally bizarre. They have to stand on their head to come up with them, and then you always find, invariably, you say, well, hmm, well, maybe that's true. But then you look at it and say, well, but now wait a minute. This depends on this happening, and this happens only in the eschaton, during the last things. Not to a pope, not to a king, not to a priest. It only happens when Christ comes, when he returns. So then, well, then all bets off. The safest, the most profitable way to approach text like this is just taking the text as written. There are times when we have to kind of look around the corner a little bit but mostly we begin by taking it literally, which we will endeavor to do. Next week we'll begin examining these cute little beasties coming out of the pit. Father God, we thank You for giving this to us. It's a burdensome passage. It's a burdensome book that man has done his best to describe and interpret in innumerable ways. Father, we ask for Your Spirit to guide us, for Your wisdom to pervade, so that we come away from this knowing what you meant in the first place, what John saw. But we thank you that we live in a time and a place where so far, as yet, we still can study it freely and discuss it amongst ourselves. Thank you for that blessing. In the name of Jesus, amen.